0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Emily Maguire. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Two SEL broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands. I want to pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land. treaty was never reached in Australia. Emily Maguire is the author of six novels and three non-fiction books. She's been nominated for the Stella Prize, the Miles Franklin Prize, and has been published widely in SMH, The Australian, and The Age. Today, she's joining me to discuss her latest novel, Love Objects. In Love Objects, Nicole has always looked out for family. When her sister Michelle packed up and left Sydney for Brisbane, Nick was devastated. Nick had always treated her niece Lena like her own, and to be separated was unbearable. Now Lena's back in Sydney studying, and every Sunday she and Nick meet up for lunch. When Nick misses their date one Sunday, Lena goes in search of her aunt. What she finds changes everything, and Lena will have to confront the lengths she will go to for someone that she loves. Now, this is a fantastic conversation that I had with Emily, and I've split it into two parts. In part one, we're going to explore a little bit that relationship between uh, Nick and her niece, Lena. We're also going to have a look at the pressures that society puts on people, the ways that our our, our sense of self can be co-opted, so join me as we discover Emily Maguire's love objects. Hello,
1: Emily speaking.
0: Hello, Emily. It's Andrew Calling from Two How are you? I'm uh, good, thanks.
1: Can
0: can <laughs> I start off with something really bizarre and and like almost icebreakery? Sure. I reread the first page and Nick's describing the, the ballet teacher who was really just a mum who'd lived in France for a year and and that's sparked some really strange part in my brain um, where I was I was thinking Jane Austen as a young woman she and her sister and I think her cousin they attended so they had an education because of their father's position but one of the one of the places they went to because of course there w- there wasn't all proper schools was apparently uh, a woman who um, Styled herself as a French teacher and took on a, a French sort of nom de uh, nom de plume, but was actually just a woman who happened to have you know lived in France for a year. Are they just completely you know universal tangential things, or
1: yeah, I had no idea about that. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> no idea that that is that little detail of Nick there at the beginning. That is one of the the few things sprinkled throughout. Is which is directly me. That's directly from my experience as a little pigeon-toed, flat-footed kid who was told that she couldn't do ballet.
0: Gorgeous. I love it. Now, in Love Objects, Lena and Will, they grew up worshipping their auntie Nick. Her house was an escape from home. She supported their every endeavour unconditionally. But when Nick's sister Michelle moved the family to Brisbane, she was devastated. Now Lena's back in Sydney and studying – Every Sunday, she and Nick meet up for lunch. But one week, when Aunty Nick misses their date on a Sunday, Lena goes in search of her aunt, only to make a shocking discovery. That feels like a bit of a clickbait, and there's so much incredible uh, things happening in Love Objects. It explores so much territory that's relevant, it's indeed necessary to our, our world today, but at its heart is that relationship between the three central characters, Emily, I love your eye for people. I love your deeply realized characters in all of your books that I've read. Nick, Lena, and Will are extraordinary in their strengths as well as in their flaws. How, how do you introduce them to people, though?
1: Mm, um, thank you for, for that lovely introduction. Uh, Nick, to me, is this sort of uh, tough, street-smart, middle-aged woman. She's a lifelong and proud checkout chick. She has a really safe and happy life. Um, except the the one floor in it, although this is not how she thinks of it, um, is that she has a lot of stuff, and this is the level of stuff that she, you know, can't fully open her front door. Um, she has to turn on the side to walk through the really narrow passageways. There's there's just so much stuff, and and again, from the outside, it it looks like a disaster area, but to her, it's a treasure trove and a real haven. Um, she 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 loves her home. She loves her stuff. Um, Lena is her niece who is um, at university. She's a little bit older than the other first-year students because it's been a bit of a struggle for her to get there. It was never a foregone conclusion that she would be at university. She's the first in her family. And she, she feels fairly self-conscious about that. She uh, feels like she doesn't quite fit in. Um, But like you said in the intro, she absolutely worships and looks after her auntie Nick and, um, you know, does the what would Auntie Nick do, thinking when she's in tricky situations that she doesn't know how to handle. Will is Lena's brother. Um, He made a terrible mistake when he was younger, when he was 18, Um, went to prison for a couple of months. And it wasn't a particularly serious charge and it was a fairly low-key experience as far as prison experiences go. Um, but the stain of that has has followed him, and uh, now in his mid twenties, he's, he's having a lot of trouble actually restarting the life that that he feels was cut off at that point.
0: And I think with Will, you've kind of touched on something that is is quite important uh, as it emerges with each of the characters. That Will has something in his past that he he's. Struggling to come to terms with, but also struggling to come to terms with the, the way other people will come to terms with it. And as I thought about how I wanted to talk about all of the events of Love Objects, I, I really – I I didn't know how I felt about kind of revealing what's going on with Nick and especially putting a label on it, which is something that does, mm. does happen in the book. You build up to it so perfectly and something about the way we travel with Nick in her perspective that makes – I guess the revelation quite jarring. It also had me thinking about how often the greatest mysteries are are kind of the things that we keep from others.
1: Mm. Yeah, it was really important to me with Nick um, that I sort of made sure that I was telling, you know, the her sections of the book anyway, very much from her deep point of view. Like that was, that was my absolute priority uh, in writing this novel. And, What's really important is that any label that others will and they do later in the book slap on her like Horda, there's no relationship to how she sees herself or her life. Um, She she is really content and (laughs) really happy and gets uh, genuine comfort from all that stuff around her Um, and if it's not for the fact that she has an accident and so Lena finds her like that... um, you know, there's, there's no reason for her to feel that uh, she is a problem, she is a burden, she has a mental illness, any of these things that other people will go on to say about her. It, it just bears no relationship to her self-conception and that was really, really important when I was writing. Um, the, the complicated thing in there is that she knows enough about how other people will react that she does keep her home as a kind of a secret she doesn't invite her beloved niece over there they always meet in a restaurant she doesn't have friends over she she's got mates at work uh she it's not that she's ashamed of it i don't think but she she knows that other people will sort of impose some kind of narrative or label on her if they see her place so it is a a real lovely thing to her but that she knows that she can't let other people see
0: as we move with nick um through her life very deeply within her perspective there's such a, a tenderness to nick's descriptions of her things and when she discovers something new to the way that she she crafts the space for it in her life she relates to the the world that she's built for herself she loves these things in such so many deep ways how did you get yourself into that mindset and, and appreciate this empathy that Nick was creating?
1: Yeah, I actually did a, a huge amount of research on uh, people with hoarding behaviour, which, which is the term I sort of broadly use um, because there's uh, there's, a, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff around labelling and diagnoses and all of that, which I'm not in the business of, of affirming or, or uh, using those kind of terms necessarily. But, but people like Nick who do tend to hang on to everything that passes through their hands. Um, And something that struck me again and again was the tenderness and the care that people who tend to hang on a lot of stuff have about that stuff that to an outsider coming in, it can look like these people are being so careless. They've just dumped all this stuff. They don't even know what's in there. It's just, you know, piles of things. But once you start talking and you ask about individual objects, There's always a story, sometimes multiple stories. There will be the story of uh, how that person came to have that thing, but there might also be stories about how it was made or who owned it beforehand. And um, in the case of Nick, she sometimes knows what those stories are and when she doesn't, she imagines them. And it's, it's a really creative mindset of seeing items as sort of frozen stories or living stories. Um, that that carry all this weight of emotion and effort. And to discard those things feels like discarding those stories, those people, or disrespecting them in some way.
0: My mind's going in a million different directions at the moment and it, it really strikes me. I and mean, as I look to my left, I've got my bookshelves where literally all of the books that I collect have a story or, or people that have a mm. wine cellar and can tell a story about, you know, individual bottles and the way those experiences are coded differently to what we're talking about here with Nick. And look uh, I mean, a central tension of love objects is Nick's feeling that she's actually, she's doing really well in her life. She's managing, she's even, she's thriving in her way of living in the world. This is seemingly supported by her life prior to a culminating event that we haven't named yet. We'll keep it a bit secret. Um, but now that she's vulnerable, she's subject to other people's standards and their perceptions of, I guess in scare quotes, the right way that she should live. Now, hoarding at a problematic level, it, it impacts, I guess, a relatively small proportion of the population. Although I, when I was doing my research, I was surprised to learn that this could be as, as, as many as 2 to 6% uh, of um. the population. But this tension, though, of, of living your life in a way that other people deem to be appropriate is a much larger issue. So I wanted maybe maybe if we can talk a little bit about gatekeeping in general. Are we are we just in, as a society too much in other people's faces about the way you should live and like the right way?
1: Yeah, look, it's such an interesting question, and I, I am kind of obsessed with it, which is is part of what's driving uh, this novel. Because I guess the the flip side of that question, or maybe it's a companion question, is. Do we leave each other alone too much or leave certain people alone too much? Um, You know, how do we care for each other as family members or as community members or as members of the world? How much, you know, what do we owe each other in terms of care? Um, And when does that become invading someone's privacy, telling them how to live, (laughs) telling them what's best for them? It's a really sort of complicated set of questions. Um, One of the reasons why it was, there's, there's several reasons why I wanted this to be a story about a um, an auntie and her niece and nephew, but one of them was thinking about the more um, obvious, immediate family relationships, at least in the sort of Anglo culture I grew up in. Mm. It, it's kind of expected that uh, kids and parents uh, will be responsible for each other if something goes wrong or that they know what's going on with each other. Now, that obviously doesn't always happen, but there's this sort of cultural expectation of it. But once you kind of get one step removed from that, that expectation isn't there. I don't think anyone would generally in this culture expect a 20-year-old young woman to bother so much about her auntie to the degree of really getting stuck into her business. Um, and so I wanted to kind of push harder at that idea of, of, of love and relationships and who we care for and who's in our circles and the, the positive side of that. But then, of course, the negative side of of how you know, should you help someone who doesn't want help, who doesn't think they need help and and it it is a really complicated thing. I think it's something that many people, uh, if you are in a close family or a close friendship group, or maybe just keeping an eye on your neighbors down the road, uh, at some point confront this idea of how how hard do I push this? I think this person's not doing well. I think there's something wrong here, but they're saying they're fine. Do I just back off?
0: It's such a it's such a beautiful but complicated relationship that you you show us between Nick and and Lena. She like Nick loves her like a daughter. She harkens back to these memories of their life together. There's a whole section in her house devoted to both Lena and to Will. But she also she she really struggles to resolve I guess a fe- feelings of fear. And also anger that the relationship might be compromised. And particularly she thinks about how it was compromised by Lena's mum when the family moved to Brisbane. Um, You really got me thinking there, though, about those ways that we extend um, love, the ways we extend our circle. I mean, this is something that it felt like everyone wanted to think about and everyone wanted to write about 12 months ago because... Our circles, yeah. our circles seemed to shrink when we were reduced to our the four walls of our house, and you know, people were dropping toilet rolls and, and and handwritten notes to neighbors. And I wonder if that was a very in the moment thing, or whether we can, you know, like your your book is is obviously signalling these things to us. But will we will we retain that idea that community can extend and expand, and that we can be more a part of each other's lives?
1: Yeah, I wonder about that too. I, I really hope so. I mean, there's some, I, I think some really uh, to use a, a often overused word, but I think relevant in this case. So I think a lot of people had epiphanies about uh, who who their people were during that time. Uh, depending on how bad the lockdown was in in a particular area that people were in, but but I think I, I think. It did force most of us to really think about who our circle of care was and sometimes that's um, blood relatives and sometimes family that we've created for ourselves. Some people really, you know, sadly realize that they, they didn't have anyone that they would automatically check in with every day and and whether that's something they wanted to change. All, all these kind of questions, I think, have definitely come up. But like you said, whether we will retain that when things, um, are, you know, who knows if they will actually I don't want to say go back to normal because I don't know if that's necessarily an entirely good thing but Mm. when when there's less of a threat of being uh, physically isolated from each other whether um, people who have have had some kind of breakthrough in their thinking will will go back to just sort of taking for granted the fact that there'll always be someone around.
0: Mm. I want to diverge a little here and and come to Lena because I guess one one way that these caring relationships are often figured, there's always there always or well, quite often seems to be a power dynamic where where someone feels that someone needs needs care, which can put them in a, a power position over that person. But but art as in life is never quite so simple. And and as Lena's trying to support Nick, she's also confronted with her own terrible situation, which she struggles to admit that she needs support with. So in the, in the story, Lena finds herself in a position where she's been filmed without her permission and now there's a sex tape that prominently features her. It's online. It's seemingly going viral. Mm. I've in, in the conversations that I'm, I'm so fortunate to have week in, week out with authors, I found myself quite often kind of excusing the fact that I'm starting to draw parallels with the fiction that I'm reading and the lives that we're living today. Books that were obviously written months or years before the discussions we're having right now seemingly reflecting them so well. So whilst I know that in writing Love Objects you may may not have known that uh, we'd be having this national discussion around the abhorrent behaviours that men just presumably seem to think they'll get away with, I wondered if the sort of behaviours, responses conversations like anonymous messages that you depict are they you know that's the that's the atmosphere that's fueling the rage that we're now seeing released isn't it
1: yeah it's so interesting because yeah obviously when i when i wrote this novel certainly the earlier draft of the this national conversation wasn't happening but but women's conversations and mm. young women's conversations um, have been full of this stuff for a really long time, which is why now this sort of larger national conversation where our prime minister is suddenly realizing certain things that, that have been happening for a really long time and that women have been, uh, rightly angry about for a long time. Mm. You know, it, 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 it does feel kind of really frustrating in a way because for, for many of us, none of this is new. It's just like, for, for whatever reason, um, it's broken through to be this, this on the national agenda. Um, I guess I guess the reason is that there's several incidents in Parliament House, which is like literally where the national agenda is made. But, mm. but yeah, what, what happens to Lena um, is reasonably common. I mean, not necessarily in the, in the real specifics, but um, I think, you know, without giving everything away, I think the specifics of what happens to her, it's, it's, she, is, uh, she hooks up with someone very willingly and has a really good time. And it was important to me to really get that across that she's not uh, being victimized in terms of uh, the actual hookup with this this guy. But uh, what happens after that is where the betrayal comes and the the lack of consent comes. And that's really, in this case, an act of um, it's not really about her at all. It's about boys or young men bonding with each other. And I think that is something that uh, at least some of these stories that are in the national agenda now um, really have in common. That the it's it's women are victimized in a particular way, but when it comes down to it, it's really about men's relationships to each other and what they're proving to each other or not. And that's something that I, I find uh, particularly. I don't know, galling, because it's, it, you know, we use this word dehumanisation a lot, but it, it feels very much like it's not just the act itself or, or the behaviour itself that, that can make a woman or girl feel dehumanised, but it's it's the fact that she's not even the point. It's not even about hurting a woman or hurting Lena in this case. It's, it's about these other observers, these other men.
0: You also work throughout the novel, uh I guess that sort of mindset of, of normal normalisation of fear and vigilance, um, this idea of situational awareness that women have to live with. Very early on, Nick talks about how, um, you know, she, you said she's a, a lifelong dedicated um, checkout chick and she, she likes the late shift because it pays better, but she knows even calm, reasonable women don't go walking after midnight. Even Lena struggles to and and i think many of the characters as they find out about what's happened to lena struggle to understand how she didn't protect herself it's this this idea of victim blaming and i wonder if if some of these these bonding rituals what you're talking about here the way men discuss women as if they're not people play into into the way these narratives are like the whole the whole thing has been normalised. So now that people are calling it out, now that pe- now that we're talking about it, it does seem quite jarring to certain segments of the population who thought this was just a thing that got done.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, this goes so deep and it's mm. so multi-layered. Um, yeah, it's 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 very complicated. Um, the, the victim blaming thing, I think when that's uh, really obvious surface level, people are really good at calling that out now. Mm. Um, you you will rarely hear maybe someone straight out say she asked for it. Mm. Um, but there's shades of that, that that we still hear all the time. And, and again a situation like Lena's, if you're a woman who is attracted to men and wants to act on that, that should be an, and very often is thankfully a, a great and fun thing to do. Mm. But if it does go badly, there there is still this sense, well, what did you expect? And I think it's this, uh, it's this real cognitive dissonance that growing up as a, as a girl or as a straight girl, woman in this society, you are supposed to simultaneously hold this idea in your head that men are the potential partners and you know sources of hopefully mutual pleasure and, and all the rest of it, but also they're dangerous beasts that you should be afraid of. And you're not allowed to say that at all it's very offensive to group all men in together and who would do that but if you are assaulted or something happens there is this reaction didn't you know that men are dangerous beasts and you should have been more careful it's it's tough
0: that's it for this great conversation with emily Maguire. emily's new novel is The love objects and it's out now from alan and unwin this was part one of the conversation so stay tuned part two is coming up very soon Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app. You will get a new Great Conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back with part two of this conversation with Emily Maguire very soon on Great Conversations from Final Draft. Until then, happy reading.